0: Good evening. So excited you're here. Uh, my name's Juan Carlos Martinez. I'm the Campus Minister for Reformed University Fellowship, or RUF, one of the Christian organizations here on campus. It's my distinct honor to welcome you to this evening's event entitled Cosmic Chemistry Do Science and God Mix. Tonight features a discussion between Professor John Lennox of the University of Oxford and Rice University's very own Dr. James Tour. During our event, our two distinguished speakers will have a public discussion on the interaction between science and God, a topic that is undoubtedly of great interest to all of us here. Before introducing our speakers, uh, allow me to go over a couple of housekeeping items. First of all, I'd like to publicly thank West University Baptist Church for sponsoring this evening's event, as well as Houston's First Baptist Church downtown for sponsoring the reception that will follow the event and which will take place in the foyer outside uh, of this room. Um, I also want to thank all the campus ministries and all the student volunteers who helped make this event possible. Thank you for all your hard work. Finally, please note that after the discussion and before the reception, there will be a Q&A session uh, so we can further encourage uh, continued dialogue and, uh, and, and discussion on, on this very important topic. I encourage you to take notes. And as far as the Q&A goes, please uh, write down your questions and text them as you get them to number uh text to 313131, 31, 31. That's three one three one three one. Then the word cosmic in the body of the text, that's the key word, and then your question. Okay, so again it's three one three one three one, the word cosmic, and then uh your question. You can see that uh over here in the through the projector. Now without further ado, it's my honor to introduce this evening's speakers. John Lennox is a Professor of Mathematics at the University of Oxford Oxford, and Emeritus Fellow in Mathematics and the Philosophy of Science at Green Templeton College, Oxford. He is also an Associate Fellow of the Said Business School, Oxford University, and teaches for the Oxford Strategic Leadership Program. In addition, he is adjunct lecturer at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford University, and at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. He is also a senior fellow of the Trinity Forum. Professor Lennox is one of the leading thinkers in the area of faith and science, and has participated in a number of moderated debates with some of the world's leading atheists, including Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens. Professor Lennox holds three doctorates, speaks five languages, has written a number of books on the interface between science, philosophy, and theology, has more than 70 published mathematical papers and is the co-author of two research level texts in algebra. Our other speaker this evening is a person who many of you know, and perhaps he is one of your professors even now. Dr. James Tour is the T.T. and W.F. Child Professor of Chemistry. He is also a professor of computer science and professor of material science and nanoengineering here at Rice University. Dr. Tour is a synthetic organic chemist authoring over 600 research publications, and has been awarded over 120 patents. He was inducted into the National Academy of Inventors in 2015 and was named among the 50 most influential scientists in the world today by thebestschools.org in 2014. That same year, Dr. Tour was also listed in in the world's most influential scientific minds by Thomson Reuters, ScienceWatch.com, the organization that ranked him as one of the top ten chemists in the world over the past decade. In 2013, R&D Magazine named Dr. Tour Scientist of the Year. As is the case with Professor Lennox, if I were to mention all the accolades and awards and accomplishments of Dr. Tour, I'm afraid that we would use up the remaining of our time for this event. So instead, let us rest assured that tonight's uh, discussion will be guided by expert scientific minds. Please join me in welcoming Professor John Lennox, and Doctor James Torp.
1: Thank you. Um, it's great to see you here. I'm glad you came to a talk on cosmic chemistry, the chemistry is such a draw to this campus. It's really good to see that Uh, we're going to start with uh, 12 minutes apiece roughly just to give our backgrounds, because we've come to learn that that one of the best ways for people to feel comfortable is if you get to know us and so that you get to know our backgrounds of where we are and what we do with our science or in or with mathematics and then also how we how we came to the faith expression that we have. And then so that you understand the worldview that we come into in our dialogue. So we work in a number of areas in, in our research and I and I, I feel funny because I'm speaking to many of my own students who actually do the work. So if I don't get this right, you can correct me at some point. But we work in an area called laser induced graphene, where we've learned how to make graphene at room temperature in, in the air with a, with a laser. Normally, you have to make graphene at a thousand degrees in an inert atmosphere. So it really works quite well in a, on, on plastic film in a roll-to-roll process. And that, that entire technology, the whole portfolio of about five patents, is being licensed to actually a local Houston company that uh, uh, is in the energy sector. We work in an area, another area called graphene nanoribbons, which recently we've shown that we can heal spinal cords with them. And and it it was really an exciting result recently where we had uh, there was a complete sever of of, uh, uh, spinal cords in rodents. And then we put one drop of this. Well, we don't. The the surgeons do. They put one drop of this solution in there and and the, the spinal cords refuse. And within one day, they're starting to detect electrical signals. And within three weeks, the rat is running and scores a 19 out of 21 on locomotive ability. So it's really quite amazing what can happen with the graphene nanoribbon when you allow the neurons to grow across these like, like a conductive path. We, we've made uh, electronic memory, and that's been licensed to a company to, to build electronic memory for computers, a, a new type of two-terminal memory. Usually, transistor memory has three terminals. This has two-terminal memory. We work in, in the area of uh, um, batteries. So, so we've got what I think are some of the best batteries in the world. That's been licensed to another company. And, and if you just look at the specs, it's going to be at least three times better than the typical battery that you would have today. That's taking into account all the different pieces. We've done a lot with graphene growing from from uh, from a number of different sources. But one of the sources for our graphene was roaches, where we can take a roach, something of negative value and convert it into graphene, which sell, <clears throat> which sells for for two hundred dollars per two millimeter square. And so one roach could probably get something on the order of ten million dollars worth of graphene just by the carbon that's in, in, in a roach. We work in a lot in carbon capture, CO2 capture from natural gas. So we've developed a, a material that's all been licensed by the local company Apache, which is a local oil company. Uh, to capture CO2 from natural gas. And, and so a lot of work has been done in, in, in my labs on that, where we have found that if we add water to the carbon, we actually capture these as what are called CO2 hydrates in very high yield. We make something called graphene quantum dots, which are a million dollars per kilogram. And we've learned how to make these from coal, coal being $60 per ton. So imagine $60 per ton to a million dollars per kilogram. And and uh, and we do that in one step in twenty five percent yield. So that's been licensed to a company and the applications of those vary uh, over a host of different applications from fluorescent materials and clothing to road stickers and things like that. We've done a lot with the oil and gas industry. We've made filtering agents for the oil and gas industry downhole sensors. We've done a lot in trying to pick up uh, uh, radioactive material from water. So if you have contaminated water, which often happens with oil floods, f- w- with water floods in the oil industry, or from nuclear disasters, you have to put, be able to extract extract the radioactive elements. That has been licensed to a, a local company that's developing that and selling that. One of the, the newest areas for us is in in, in uh, these nano submarines. We've been working on nanocars for, for many years. These are these single molecule cars that are two nanometers by three nanometers, so we can park fifty thousand of these across the diameter of a human hair. So they're very, very small. They have motors, independently rotating axles, four-wheels axles, and, and a loading bay, and motors that can that can spin at three megahertz. That's three million rotations per second when we shine light on them. Now we have built these into nanosubmarines and opening up cell membranes so you have them interact with the cell by we put a, a, a peptide addend on there and it will interact with the the cell surface and then you turn them on and their their mechanical action at the molecular scale opens up holes in the cells so we could either kill the cells or we can introduce analytes that way so we work across a number of different areas so that gives you an overview of the different areas that I work in that that, that my group works in so my current chemistry family is a group of about twenty five people. And, and so uh, I love those folks and, and they work many, many hours, which makes me look really good. And uh, they're very kind to do that with me. So how did I become interested in chemistry? Well, I was just telling one young lady just before I came up here that I wanted to be a New York State trooper. And uh, that's really what I, I wanted to be. But and she said, well, why didn't you? I said, well, well, I couldn't because I'm colorblind, so I couldn't get into the academy. I don't know if it would keep me out of the academy now. I I feel as if I could be a paraplegic and still become a policeman now. But but at the time, you you couldn't be colorblind. And and, uh, um, so that kept me out of the academy. So I thought I'd study forensic science. So I was 17 years old and I was thinking about colleges to study forensic science. My dad said, instead of taking forensic science, why don't you just get a general degree in chemistry and then you can specialize after that. And what amazes me to this day is at the age of 17, I listened to my father. <laughs> and and then when I when I took organic chemistry, I just fell in love with organic chemistry, you know how thick those organic chemistry textbooks are. They're like like twelve hundred pages. They were twelve hundred pages back then, too. And and uh, and I I did not only the assigned problems. I did all the problems at the end of every chapter that had not even been assigned. That's how much I loved it. I mean, think about that. Who, who does that? But but that's what I would do. And, and I really loved Friday nights because there were so few people in the library and I could just I could just go there and study very quietly. And then particularly the days that there were football games that this this was at Syracuse University. So students actually went to football games. <laughs> I, I, I could I could uh, I could go find an empty classroom and, and just just uh, study chemistry. So that's what I did every football game as well. I loved molecular structure. Well, the question then comes: How does how did I come to faith? Well, when I went to college, I was I was a I grew up in a in a um, in, in a non-religious Jewish home, and and uh, I'd be in the temple only a couple times a year, and so so we were quite secular. I grew up in in the New York City area. I was born in Manhattan, grew up just outside the city. And a young man, we were. It was just August of my freshman year. And and we were talking in the laundry room and he he was on the Syracuse University football team. And I asked him if he wanted to play pro ball when he graduated. He said, oh, no, I'm not good enough for that. I said, well, what what would you like to do? He said, well, maybe go into lay ministry. And I and, you know, I'm a Jewish kid. I don't know what's lay ministry. What do you mean? He said, oh, something like a missionary missionary. It's 1977. You don't need missionaries We got TV. Why do you have to go as a missionary? Just put it on TV. And and uh, and he said, I'd like to give you an illustration of the gospel. And so I said, sure, that's fine. And I didn't know that he actually meant he was going to draw a picture. He drew a picture of a cliff and he put man on one side of the cliff. And then there was a great chasm. And on the other side of the of the chasm was another cliff. And it was God. And he says and he wrote sin between the two cliffs. And he said, sin separates us from God. And he had me read a verse from the Bible It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not a sinner. And he, he thought that that was kind of odd that somebody would say that. But modern secular Judaism doesn't think much about sin. I know in Christianity, people think a lot about sin. It's like, oh, every thought, I mean, I might be sinning. And Judaism. It's so much easier. You don't even think about this type of stuff. You go to you go to the synagogue once a year. The rabbi takes care of everything for you. And then he had me read another verse why he chose that verse. I'm not sure because I had not said anything in particular other than to say I'm not a sinner. I said, I've never robbed a bank. I've never killed anyone. How could I be a sinner? And then he had me read a verse. And Jesus said in, in the gospel, according to Matthew, he said, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. And that really stung me, because at the time I was 18 years old, but I was addicted to pornography. And that was long before the Internet. I'd started working in a gas station on the highway going in. It, it was just right on the route into New York City. And, and at the age of 14, I told the owner that I was 16 and they didn't check paperwork back then. And uh, um, And when I would clean the the parking lots, I noticed that the the salesmen would throw away their their magazines on Friday nights on their way home. And so I accumulated a stash of magazines at the age of 14, and I rapidly became addicted to pornography. And I didn't know that anybody knew this. And when he said that, when I read that verse, it just stung me. And so all of a sudden he had my attention and then he had me read other verses about how Christ died for me. I didn't even know as a Jew, that there was a claim on the table that Jesus died for me. You would think I grew up in New York City. I should know. I mean, nobody ever really told me. Maybe somebody told me, but it just never, never connected. And then on November 7th of my freshman year, so it was just a few months after he shared with me, I was all alone in my room and I had I had met several other Christian uh, uh, young people and and they had had uh, talked to me and I had started attending a little Bible study. But on November 7th, 1977, I was all alone in my room and I got down on my knees and I don't know what made me get down on my knees because because in modern Judaism, we don't do that. And Christians normally sit when they pray. And and I and I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, forgive me, because I am a sinner. Forgive me and come into my life. And then all of a sudden there was somebody in my room and I opened my eyes. Because someone was in my room, but I didn't see anybody, and it was as if, as if this presence was there. And I began to feel sin lifted off of me. This guilt that I had had after I had read that verse about, about lusting after a woman just started to lift from me. And the presence was so overwhelming to me that I didn't even want to get up, and I just started weeping like a baby, which was very unusual to me. And what am I going to say? I didn't know what to say. And then about two weeks later, this young man who had shared with me asked me, says, Jim, have you asked Jesus in your heart? And I said, I I think I have. Why do you ask? He says, because you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. Something happened to me on that day. And I asked him. How can I remain with this closeness, this close feeling? He said, I've asked people who are close to the Lord and walk closely with the Lord, and they say they read their Bible every day. And those who don't read their Bible every day never have that closeness. I said that I can do. That's digital. I understand that. If I read my Bible, I'll stay close to the Lord. If I don't, I won't. And so I started reading the Bible, which I've read every day for, <clears throat> for more than 35 years, every day of my life. And I start in Genesis chapter one, verse one. And I read right on through to Revelation chapter 22. When I'm done, I start again. It's a book. I read it right on through. And this is the way the, 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 the way that that, that I received from the Lord. And I've seen the pattern of God in my life. That's the story of my life. And that's going to be the context of the worldview that I'll be coming from in the discussion. And now I'd like to introduce Professor Lennox, which and, and uh, And I'm going to call Professor Lennox John, and, uh, 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 but I respect him highly. But we decided to c- that I will call him by his first name so that we, we really make this like a, a, a friendly talk.
2: Well,
3: thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be once again in this distinguished university. And I'm very conscious of the fact that there are several major differences between me and Professor Tour. The first one is he's a real scientist. (laughs) And I am at a disadvantage because often it happens in Oxford that I'm at dinner with a real scientist like Professor Tour. And he tells me about the fascinating things that he's doing with nanotechnology and chemistry. And then he says, and what do you do? And I said, algebra. (laughs) And the reply is, how dreadfully boring. So I'm at a serious disadvantage. But it is a great honour for me, as a pure mathematician, who's never really got my hands dirty with the matter of this world and the chemistry, to stand together with someone who's contributed at the highest level in the understanding of the material world. Dr. Tour uses his mind to understand chemical systems. I try to use my mind to understand ideas. The second big difference between us, which will be important tonight is, as you've just heard, Dr. Tour had the experience of having his worldview changed. He became a Christian from a nominal Jewish background. I have never had my worldview changed. I did become a Christian, but I grew up with a very strong Christian influence in my family. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about that background so that you understand where I'm coming from. I come from a very tiny country called Northern Ireland. And it's famous for, sadly, for its sectarianism. And I, of course, grew up at the time of the so-called Troubles, when Protestants were fighting against Catholics. My parents were Christian without being sectarian. What does that mean? It meant that my father was so convinced of the biblical teaching that every man and woman, whether they believe in God or not, are equal in value and dignity because they are created in the image of God, that in his store, which employed at the most 30 or 40 people, he employed equally across the religious divide. That was a very risky thing to do. It cost him bombs. It nearly cost my brother his life. So I grew up with a sense that Christianity was very real in its evaluation of human beings. And as I began to grow up and search through the various philosophies of the world, one of the touchstone questions is, what is the value of a person in this philosophy? So that was the start. They laid a deep foundation in my life that has held the test of time because I've grown up through the period where now in Europe, we are losing our sense of values. Europe is rapidly moving into an ethical and moral and intellectual fog because we have lost the roots of our civilization that gave us our universities, our civil institutions, our hospitals and so on, which is actually the Christian faith. Now, as I grew, I discovered very rapidly that God is not a theory. He's a person, not merely a philosophical construct, but a person that you could get in contact with it. You just heard a marvellous description of an encounter between Dr. Tour and God that happened so many years ago. Similarly, it happened to me because growing up in a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. You have to become a Christian by a deliberate step of commitment to Jesus Christ. But my parents, though Christian, loved me enough to give me space to think. And although they were not highly educated, they believed that biblical truth could and would stand the test of questioning. And so they encouraged me to read other worldviews. When I was 13, my father gave me a copy of Marx's Das Kapital. And I said, what's that about Dad?" He said, I don't know, but he said, you need to read other people's worldviews and understand where they're coming from if you're going to navigate yourself through life. Now, in school, I was a bit like Dr. was in university. Uh, in primary school, I was the only one who asked for extra homework in arithmetic, <laughs> much to the distress of the teachers. And then, uh, later on, I had a brilliant languages teacher. And so I got fascinated by language, first of all French, then Latin, so I wanted to be a classicist. But somewhere along the line, I became a ham radio operator. And we didn't have the money for travel, but I discovered I could speak around the world in a transmitter I built myself from my home. I also discovered it was a brilliant way to learn foreign languages. So I learned to speak French, and then I learned on that way mainly speak German, so I was going to be a linguist. But then the radio got me and I thought, well, perhaps I should be an electrical engineer. So I put my name down for electrical engineering, got a scholarship, but one day my headmaster came and he said, Lennox, would you like to go to Cambridge? Well, I hadn't really thought about it. I said, sir, do I have a chance? He said, yes, but not for electrical engineering. I said, why not? He said, our physics isn't good enough, our chemistry isn't good enough. But he said, I can teach you mathematics. And if you change to concentrating on mathematics, you might get in. So I consulted friends and I ended up in Cambridge. Now, arriving in Cambridge as the one token Irishman in my college during the year, two very important things happened almost immediately. The first was on day one or day two, I went to church and I saw this wonderful vision. She was 16 years old. <laughs> I've now been married to her for 48 years. So that was a very good thing to happen so rapidly. But secondly, I was challenged about my faith in God in my college. At dinner, a student said to me, By the way, John, we were getting to know one another. He said, Do you believe in God? And I said, Oh, I'm so sorry. Gosh, I forgot you're Irish. You Irish all believe in God and you fight about it. Now, of course, I'd heard that before and many times since. But it struck me, could he be right? My parents' Christian, my grandparents' Christian, my great-grandparents' Christian. Sure, it's obvious, it's Irish genetics. It's got a perfectly clear biological and psychological (laughs) explanation. And I thought, what do I do about this? Now, in Ireland, I hadn't met many atheists. Well, there were Protestant atheists and Catholic atheists. But I hadn't met many real atheists. (laughs) So, I decided at Cambridge that on that day, I would get to know people that did not share my worldview. I would befriend them. I would ask them questions. And find out what it was that made them tick, what their values were, and so on. I've been doing that ever since. My life has been an exploration of this fundamental question. Can I be sure that what I believe is true? Not simply if it's helpful, but is it true? And the way I have done that is by exposing my vulnerabilities to other people and getting to know them and befriend them up to the very highest level of atheism as you have just heard. And one of the first questions I asked was, I'm a Christian. I became a Christian. My parents who didn't make me a Christian. But is it possible to change your worldview? And so one of the first people I befriended was an agnostic. He'd never been to church. His parents had never been to church. And we dialogued for two years. And then one day he came and he was smiling. There's something about smiling, isn't there, Jim? He was smiling and I said, what's happened? Well, he said, yesterday I went into my room and I knelt down. There's another one. And I became a Christian. And for me, that was so important. It's actually possible for a person to change their worldview. Of course, I've seen it happen many, many times since. But... At Cambridge, as a student, I developed a huge interest in other people's worldviews and how they related to Christianity. The Big worldview questions like the existence of God and uh, the meaning of life, existential questions about purpose. In other words, the questions every one of you are asking. As I travel around the world, I find more and more students, are searching for a story that's big enough to plug their life into. They're searching for meaning. Now, I was challenged by that student, but a far bigger challenge was about to come. Because one day I was sitting at one of the lovely dinners in Cambridge, and I found myself sitting beside the first Nobel Prize winner I'd ever met. And we started to talk, and I was cheeky enough in those days to raise the question of God, you see. And it was clear to me that that wasn't perhaps the right thing to do. But afterwards, he invited me to his room with three other professors, no students. And he said, sit down, Lennox. And they stood around me. And he said, do you want a career in science? I said, yes, sir. Well, he said, you give up in front of witnesses tonight this childish faith of God. Because if you don't, you will be intellectually crippled. You will never make it. You'll never get anywhere. The pressure was absolutely devastating. And in the end, I said, Sir, what have you got to offer me that's better than what I've already got? And he said, Bergsonian evolutionism. Have you ever heard of it? And I just looked at him and said, Sir, if that's all you've got to offer me, I'll take the risk and I'll stick with what I've got. Now, that was a turning point because there was the highest level of science invading my private space to be free to believe. So it was an apparent conflict between science and faith in God. I never forgot it, and it has lived with me all of these years. And one of the things we're going to be talking about in a moment is, is this a, a valid kind of reaction? But I just want to finish with another story related to the question of changing worldview. I debated some time ago Peter Singer Princeton. I debated him in Melbourne, Australia, which is his home territory. And I gave an introduction a bit like I've given tonight, and I talked about my parents, And the debate was, does God exist? And he stood up and he said, well, there you go. He said, you know, you've just given the best reason for not believing in God. You've told us your parents were Christian. And you're a Christian. Well, he said, that's just it. People remain in the religious faith in which they're brought up. And that's my biggest reason for not believing in God. And I thought, this is going to be very interesting. So when I got a chance to speak, I said, Peter... I said, I've told them about my parents. What about your parents? Were they atheists? He said, yes, they were. Oh, I said, that's very interesting. (laughs) You have remained in the faith in which you were brought up. Oh, but he said, it isn't a faith. Oh, I said, I'm sorry, Peter, I thought you believed it. (laughs) And cyberspace went mad at that point. Here's one of the world's leading philosophers who doesn't realize his atheism is a belief system. There are many like that. You will hear it again and again. I'm an atheist. I simply believe there's no God. So... This isn't a belief system. Of course it is, because the flip side of it is naturalism and all the consequences of it. Richard Dawkins doesn't believe in God. How long does he need to explain it? Over 400 pages in the book The God Delusion. That is what he believes. So we're up against a problem, ladies and gentlemen. People say, I'm a Christian, I have faith in God, and that is absolutely true. But we are atheists, we don't have faith. Nonsense. Every worldview is a belief system that we believe. And the key question to ask is, what is the evidence that that belief system is true? But now we need to get on with the dialogue. Thank you very much indeed.
1: Okay, so, considering our title here, Cosmic Chemistry and Science and Faith, why do so many leading figures think that science and God don't mix?
3: It's a fascinating title we've got, actually. And I've spent a large part of my life trying to answer this question. Because these are seriously bright people. Now you say why there's so many there are many but not all and we need to be very careful to distinguish between various levels of atheism not everybody's like Richard Dawkins and his militant and indeed in my University of Oxford people will cross the street and say to me you know John you know I'm an atheist but please don't confuse me with him because they do not like this militancy and I thought about a long time because especially when Stephen Hawking came out with the fact that he didn't believe in God and said that physics leaves no room for God. I thought, how can Stephen Hawking really think that? And I came to two conclusions briefly. Firstly, one of the problems is they don't understand what we mean by God. Now that was a shock to me. And relatively recently I realised That when I talk about God, I'm talking about the eternal creator revealed to us in the Bible. The God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. But when they use the word God, they are thinking of a kind of Greek God. Like the God of lightning. And the basic idea behind it is, I don't understand lightning because I haven't been to your lectures. Therefore, I believe a God did it. But if I come to your lectures, I will understand about lightning and so on, so I get rid of God. The God is just a God of the gaps. And Dawkins regards God as the same kind of explanation as a scientific one. And it suddenly struck me that if you believe God is a God of the gaps, just a temporary explanation until you get the real scientific one, of course you have to choose between science and God. Because that's the way you define God. But you see... You may have noticed that the first statement of the Bible is not. And God, in the beginning, God created the bits of the universe we can't understand. That's absurd. God is the creator of the whole show. The bits we can understand and the bits we can't. So our understanding of them doesn't threaten the existence of God. That's the first point. They're confused about the God they're talking about. Let me put it this way. The God that they think I believe in, I don't believe in at all. But the second point has to do with science itself and the nature of explanation. Very briefly, let me just give you a simple illustration. Why is the water boiling? Well, it's boiling because heat energy from the Bunsen burner is being conducted through the copper base of the kettle, which is agitating the molecules of water. That's why it's boiling. No, it isn't. It's boiling because I want a cup of tea. (laughs) Now, why do you laugh? Well, you laugh because I'm talking nonsense, but secondly, you laugh because you see something. You realise that those two explanations don't compete, they don't conflict, they complement. And standing back from them, what we're saying is there's a physics explanation but there's an agency and intentional explanation, I want a cup of tea. And those work together, but because they're different kinds of explanation, they don't conflict or compete. Now, this is a dead simple illustration, but it's very important, because which is the more important of the two explanations? Well, people have been drinking tea for thousands of years before they ever understood the physics of eight. And that's the interesting thing. Some scientists want to tell you the only explanation that's valid is a scientific one. That is rarely the case. And let me put it this way, ladies and gentlemen. Science no more competes with God as an explanation for the universe than the law of internal combustion competes with Henry Ford as the explanation for a motor car. Does, does that make sense to you? Would you want to come in on that, Jim?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that, that that's certainly the case, that, that so often we don't understand each other. And, and the, the view is of my colleagues when we talk about God, that they, they don't understand that that uh, I don't see a conflict. You know, they so often say, how do you, how are you a scientist? How can you be a scientist and believe in God? How can you be a scientist and be such a person of faith? Don't you see the conflict? And I never see that conflict. I read the Bible every day, and I read about chemistry every day, and I never have perceived a
3: conflict. Yes, because I think that what you're saying here is you have a sense, almost inbuilt, that these are different spheres, really. But you never see the conflict between science and God, but there is a conflict. And it's because people sense there's a conflict somewhere that they get confused. What I mean by that is this. It should be utterly obvious to everybody here that science and God don't conflict. Why is that? Take the Nobel Prize in Physics. Now, there are... Let's take Peter Higgs won it a couple of years ago, the Scotsman. He's an atheist. Bill Phillips. An American won it a few years before that. He's a Christian. They've both won the Nobel Prize in Physics. So their science doesn't divide them. What divides them is their worldview. And what I would maintain is the only way to navigate through these questions is this, is to realize the conflict is not between science and faith in God, as you say. The conflict is between the worldview of theism. Christian theism in our case, belief in God, and atheism. And there are scientists on both sides. And once you begin to see that, it changes your whole relationship to this dialogue. So the real question is this. Where does science sit? Does it, like Dawkins claims, point towards atheism? Or does it point towards theism? Or does it point nowhere?
1: So, so, um, what do you make of people, because you mentioned Stephen Hawking, who feel that the universe created itself? How do you, how do you address that?
3: With great pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, this idea of a universe of nothing has led to me going around the world giving lectures on nothing. I mean, it's a wonderful topic, nothing. <laughs> because we have come to the ultimate issue, God or Nothing. And I was given a preview of Stephen Hawking's book with Leonard Mladenov, The Grand Design. It's a bestseller, And the key argument in it is this. It's a statement and it's an argument simultaneously. It says, because there is a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. And when I read that, I thought, just come again? <laughs> because there is a law of gravity... Because there is something, the universe will create itself from nothing. That's a flat contradiction in any logical showing. But there's something worse. Because there is a law of gravity, he doesn't say because gravity exists, and that opens a window into a common misconception that laws do something. Because there's a law of gravity, he doesn't say because gravity exists, but laws, Newton's laws of motion, never moved. A football in the history of the universe. People with boots do that. And Wittgenstein, I think, put his finger on it when he said, the great delusion of modernity is that the laws of nature are explanations of the phenomena of nature. They're not. They're not. That's the most interesting thing. I was taught at school, falsely, that the law of gravity explains gravity. I was a grown man when I discovered that the law of gravity doesn't explain gravity, nobody knows what gravity is. The law of gravity gives you a brilliant mathematical formulation where you can do calculations of the motions of massive objects relative to one another, but it doesn't explain gravity. So it's very dangerous to say that science explains, but to come directly to the point because I haven't forgotten it. um, The last part of the sentence is wonderful. The universe can and will create itself from nothing. How about a bit of logical analysis this late at night? If I say to you, X creates Y, what does that mean? Well, roughly speaking, if you've got X, you'll get Y. If I say X creates X, what does that mean? Well, if you've got X, you'll get X. And what does that mean? It means that nonsense remains nonsense, even as Stephen Hawking is writing it. It is utterly absurd. Now, it concerns me when you get someone of the massive intellect of Hawking, and I remember him at Cambridge. He's light years brighter than I am as a mathematician. But he strayed over into the dangerous territory of philosophy and made the fatal mistake in that same book of announcing early on philosophy is dead. And then he writes a book on the philosophy of science, which wasn't very clever. (laughs) He's made a profound mistake here. And it turns out, of course, that if you have to talk nonsense to get rid of God, you're not doing anything very impressive. Now, there's another person engaged in the same thing. You see, if you're going to get a universe from nothing, it's problematical. So, one of the ways to do it is to redefine nothing. You know, nothing, what does it mean? It means not anything. I went downtown in Houston and I met nobody. It doesn't mean I met somebody called nobody. It means I didn't meet anybody. Isn't that right? Everybody understands what nothing means. Listen to Lawrence Krauss of ASU, who wrote a book, A Universe from Nothing. On about page four he says, Because something is physical... Nothing must be physical, especially if it's defined as the absence of something. What? (laughs) This is astonishing, ladies and gentlemen. But it's the extent to which people go, because we now have an intellectual polarization. We have the claim, that Jim and I both believe, that the universe was created not by nothing, but from nothing by a personal creator God. And now the alternative is God or nothing. And you've got to choose between the two. So I'm afraid I'm not very convinced about these attempts to get something from nothing. And David Albert is a brilliant philosopher in New York, and he has done a brilliant take on Krauss and Hawking. And he points out that these people redefine nothing subtly to be a quantum vacuum which isn't nothing and so on and so forth. And the whole field is completely in disarray and leaves me sensing, well, if that's the extreme you have to go to, to violate the rules of logic and to talk nonsense, then the pristine message in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth makes more sense than ever.
1: Mm. I think that uh, during the Q&A session these, this will probably arise it with some well questions go. and that, that's great. Yeah.
3: yeah, well now Jim, I've done a lot of talking and I want to shut up because you're the real scientist here. And you, you know, one of the things I've come across in life is the constant use by certain people, particularly Richard Dawkins, to use biological evolution as a knockdown argument against God. Dawkins wrote early on uh, Darwin enabled me to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. And then in his book The Blind Watchmaker, which I have read several times, he makes this statement. He said, you know, the uh, mechanism of natural selection, which Darwin discovered, is the explanation for the existence and variation of all living things. Now, of course, Dawkins has retracted the first half of the sentence after many years because he is aware now, at least because he said so, that you cannot use evolution, which depends on the existence of life, to explain the existence of life. So we're really coming into two areas here. There's first of all the variation, granted that life is there. That's used as an argument against God. But then there's the even bigger question of the origin of life itself. Now, you're a chemist. You're really into these things. So I'd love you to comment on both of those things if you wish to.
1: Okay, well, let me, let me take evolution first. I, and, um, and I've spent the past the past eight months or so actually really trying to understand evolution. And I've, I've gone and I've talked with with geneticists, with biologists, with philosophers of science and uh, uh, coming from all different worldviews and, and listening to them. And so so I had a very good lesson on on uh, common descent, universal common descent. And so the whole argument for biologists has shifted from from uh, uh, the 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 uh, uh, this natural selection and random variation to common descent, along with this neutral drift, these small changes in, in DNA that occur from one generation to another. And that's where it's gone. And so when I, when I listened to these, these arguments on common descent, they're extremely sophisticated. And I was quite impressed, really quite impressed. And I, I really went to listen to my colleagues and, and I would travel around the country and just, just, uh, we would make arrangements. I'd lie there, we'd go sit in an office and for two days I would just get tutored on common descent. And I would just listen and then only ask questions when I didn't understand something. And uh, and there is a lot pointing in evolution toward this concept of common descent. And then when you when when you really probe it, they I've been told and I'm, I'm quoting as best as I can remember that biology is about understanding the mechanisms of variation and universal common descent. So when I look at that, then 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 there's two points here, the universal common descent. And if you look at this one point five percent of the human genome, so the human genome is is, is huge, there's about 20,000 different segments that are defining the the proteins that make us predominantly make us. And this is where the vast majority of the study is, it's one point five percent of our total DNA is where these studies are. And the rest of the DNA used to be called junk DNA. But now it's more accurately called called intergenic DNA within that one point five percent universal common descent looks very strong. And I have to concede that looks very strong. It turns out that there's a there's a project called uh, Project ENCODE and, and Project ENCODE wanted to look at that intergenic DNA, that other Ninety eight and a half percent of the DNA. And it turns out that within there, there are many codes that do code for the proteins that actually regulate our bodies. So it's not junk DNA. There's lots of codes in there. And then there's another study on what are called orphan genes and orphan genes are unique to a certain species. So in other words, if there is common descent, Why are there orphan genes that are really specific to a particular species really specific and you don't find them going across? You don't find them in in, in other regions. You don't find them in a chimpanzee. So within universal common descent, we are finding time after time these descriptions of uncommonness within common descent. So I will grant that common descent has a lot going for it as a theory. But now, as time goes on, especially in the the intergenic uh, DNA, there's a lot of uncommon features among them. Now we we take a step back to the mechanism. Remember, modern biology is the study of the mechanism and of universal common descent. What about the mechanism? So so there was there was uh, one person on the on the Internet that really started attacking me. So I tried my best to befriend him. Finally, I got him on the phone because I hate these Internet dialogues. I don't read blogs unless people clip a section out, email it to me and say, look what's said about you. Do you have any comment? And generally, I have no comment because I don't want to go tit for tat in this. But anyway, I got this guy on the phone and he says, oh, you just just Google it. You'll find it. I said, find what? What what am I going to find? So finally, after a year and a half, he agreed and he sent me about 70 articles. He said, you could have found all this yourself. And so I said, "Okay." He took the time to send me 70 articles. I'll read them. So I sat down for a weekend and read these articles. And I asked him specifically for the chemistry and he's an expert in the immune system because the immune system is made to evolve. It does evolve. It changes as as we get exposed to things. But after I read all these articles, I noticed the immune system remained an immune system. It never became a digestive system. And then in none of the articles did I see any chemistry. There was no chemistry, and I had asked them specifically for the chemistry. And then if you look at the mechanisms, if you say that, that there is there is this line of common descent, then between Australopithecus, which is the, the one just next to the humans, the, the, there, there's this Australopithecus and then humans. If you look at this or you, and you compare the human brain to that, that Australopithecus or you compare the human brain to any other hominid brain. They're identical anatomically. Anatomically, we can't tell the difference. What's so special about a human that we have all this symbolism that occurs. So we speak with complex language. No other animals do this. We speak with mathematics, complex mathematics. We communicate in many different ways in complexity, highly complex, uh, complex uh, uh, ways. Our artwork is so advanced, it's all based on the symbolism. What is it that's occurred in this one step of common descent to go from having no symbolism or almost no symbolism to such advanced symbolism? So if you look at it anatomically, you look at the structure of the brain, there's no difference. Then you look at it molecularly. You look at whatever resolution you can look at the molecular structure difference between other hominid brains and the human brain. There's nothing you can't see the difference. So whatever it is, as of today, it is inexplicable. So remember, biology is about mechanisms. What is the mechanism by which we've gone from no symbolism? to all of a sudden symbolism in a brain that looks anatomically and chemically the same. There's no mechanism. So if biology is about mechanism and universal common descent, I don't see the mechanism. There is no mechanism for us. And on the universal common descent, we're getting more and more uncommonness and all that to say, Universal Common Descent is a tremendous theory with many things going for it, but as time goes on, there's still uncommonness. So it leaves room for question, certainly for a chemist who's just said, "Okay, to my colleagues, explain it to me.
3: So what I'm understanding from this is that you've gone around deliberately opening yourself up to all kinds of possibilities, but you've been asking hard scientific questions. You've been saying, look, where is the mechanism? You're claiming there is a mechanism. Where is it? And you've been dissatisfied with what you find.
1: Not only is there not a mechanism that they can show me a chemical mechanism, I even stood back and said, fine, you don't have a mechanism, and they all conceded modern biology is not there. I said, okay, give me a proposal for what might happen. Just how in your mind does the mechanism occur for particular what is called body plan changes? How would a change occur in a body plan? And you can look all these terms up on Wikipedia and what body plan and what is even a proposal? No clue, no clue of even a proposal. I said you don't even have to prove it. Just how do you in your own mind see the mechanism occurring? They said, well, variations, small variations on top of small variations. So I said, but remember, to have a body plan change, you have to have multiple concerted lines of small variations occurring in the same place at the same moment in time to concertedly get these sort of changes. And there was nothing. So, so I, I left a little bit
3: saddened. So it sounds a little bit, your experience has been the emperor's no clothes. I think it's important to stand back from this, ladies and gentlemen, because what Jim's been investigating is the scientific side of this. But we need to be clear from the beginning that whatever the answer to those questions, they don't knock God out. Because, of course, God being a creator, he can do it any way he likes. So there are two questions. The first is you cannot deduce atheism from biology. Atheism is a worldview. Biology is a subject within the natural sciences. That doesn't work. But secondly, if you're going to deduce atheism, then first of all it has to be logically possible, which I would say it isn't. But secondly, evolution, which means many different things, has to bear the weight that's being put on it. And what you're suggesting, it sounds to me, is it's, it's not bearing the weight that's being put on it. But can I now bring you back to your favourite topic, uh, the chemistry? Because it fascinates me, reading things about the biggest problem, and that is the origin of life. And as you look at that as a chemist, We have the statement in scripture, in the beginning, God created. He is the originator of life. Now, we don't know how it was done and so on. But leaving God out of it completely, what is your reaction to the origin of life research?
1: You know, this is very interesting. So, I spent all of the summer of 2015 studying the papers on the chemistry of the origin of life. This is not a biologist's problem. The chemists have gone after this because this is prebiology. So the origin of life, so you have to talk about what's called prebiotic chemistry, the chemistry before biology, or sometimes referred to as abiogenesis. And so I went back and I, I asked, started asking my colleagues, and I said, tell me about the origin of carbohydrates. And one of my colleagues said, carbohydrates, because you, you have to have four parts to life, there are four chemical parts to life. So you've got carbohydrates, nucleic acids, lipids, and proteins. You've got to have those four parts. Life as we know it. And you say, well, life was seeded from some other place. That just transfers the question. It begs the question. You have to look at, say, well, we're origin of first life. This is what we're talking about. So for origin of first life, life as we know it has these four basic chemi- chemical components. You have to make each one of those. So I started with carbohydrates, which are sugars. He said, oh, those come... From uh, 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 Those come from, from the foremost reaction, from formaldehyde, from the foremost reaction. I said, okay. And that was it. And he said, I'll send you a paper on it. So he was happy with carbohydrates coming from the foremost reaction. And he sent me a paper. So I read all the chemistry on the foremost reaction and what were chemists' proposals on making carbohydrates. So you have to be able to make a ribose this, this, this five-carbon sugar. Why ribose? Because ribose is, is, is the sugar that's used to string together DNA and RNA. You have to be able to have ribose. So what the chemists did, they started to try to make ribose without controlled conditions and just, just mixing, mixing uh, 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 bases and, and, and formaldehyde and trying to get, get, get the, uh, uh, the ribose. All of their talents they couldn't get ribose, except in tiny little racemic quantities in massive amounts of mess. And at the end of the day, after he got this, he couldn't put a nucleic acid on it. And he just threw up his hands. This is what my colleague was basing his worldview on, where carbohydrates came from, was this chemistry. I went back, I read the actual experimentals, and I dissected them. It was really very simple. And then I read about the nucleic acids, same thing. The chemistry doesn't work. So what I did is I wrote this article and if you were to just Google my name, J- James Tour and inference because it was published in the online journal inference. And you would see that, 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 that this article would come up or just on my website, jamtour.com, under the personal topics and the uh, uh, creation evolution statement there, you'll see the, the article reference. You can just click on it. But the chemistry doesn't work. Then I took every modern paper coming out and I just dissected them very easy, even in the pristine laboratory. So at the end of the article, here's what I did. And nobody's taken up this challenge. They say, "Okay, you can't make any of it. You can't make any of it in any significant yield. And remember, you've got to be able to make enough to bring to the next step and the next step and the next step. And now you run out of starting material, so you've got to go back and make more. But how are you going to go back and make more? Because... Abiogenesis never kept a laboratory notebook. Forgot how to go back and make more. So it has to start all over again. Ah, well, it took me 400 million years to get here. Well, sorry. Got to make more. You ran out of starting material. So I said, okay, I'll give you the carbohydrates. I'll give you the lipids. I'll give you the nucleic acids. I'll give you the peptides. I'll give you not, not, not not just the amino acids. I'll even give you the peptides. Can any chemist in the world Or a team of scientists in the world put all those together into just something simple, like one cell, one living cell? No. Even if you had all the pieces, which you can't get, you don't know how to put together a cell. The only people that think you can are people that have never done synthetic chemistry to understand this. What's amazing is biologists will say, yeah, maybe we can do it. And you start to probe What would you do first? Tell me, what is it you would do? How would you do that? A synthetic chemist would right away say, of course, I cannot do that. I cannot. Because they are in the trenches with the molecules learning, knowing what they can do and cannot do. So the origin of life is actually the nail holding the coffin closed on evolution. You can't even discuss evolution without origin of life. You have to have that first cell before you can even discuss evolution. So the hardest question is origin of life. We are clueless. And the final word of the publication is, it is a mystery. We have no idea. That was a long answer to a short question.
3: (laughs) You know, I'd love to learn chemistry from this man. (laughs) It was a long answer, but it raises such interesting questions for me. I am a complete layman in the chemistry. But listening to that, what we hear is, Conclusion, it's a mystery. That is, at the moment, we can't even begin. Now, of course, looming in the background will come the objection. Give it time, Jim, and we'll get there. And I'd like to address that question, which arises from it. When, me, when you
1: do that, will you address for me, since you're a mathematician, the whole question of information? Because, because when I talk about origin of life, I didn't even address information. Even if I gave you all the nucleic acids, how do you put them together to give you a sequence of information? That's another mystery.
3: How do you address that? Well, it actually begins to answer the question I've just raised. Because the assumption is that eventually, with time, we will solve this problem in terms of purely natural unguided processes of physics and chemistry. For me as a mathematician, that raises a huge problem. Because what we're dealing with is not simply physics and chemistry. It's a very special kind of molecule which stores information. It's information rich. And if you're thinking of DNA, for example, one way of looking at it which people usually do although it was resisted at the beginning is it's a very lengthy word it's 3.5 billion letters long in a chemical alphabet of four letters and all the language of theoretical computer science is being used to describe it the genetic code why is it called the code because it codes for something now the first thing to realize there is a mathematical theory of information It mostly concentrates on syntactic information of the shannon kind semantic information that is where there is meaning and coding is much more difficult but certain things can be said i believe and the first and most important of them is this that information whatever it is is not material
1: it's not material it's not
3: material it's carried often on material carriers and we look at the screen we see information on it and we can read it, but the information itself is not material. Now, if in this information age we begun to realise a number of things. First of all, that information is fundamental to physics and chemistry, and certainly the chemistry of life. Secondly, since the information is not material, it cannot be produced by natural unguided material processes. And we can see that intuitively, that the moment we look at that screen and see the writing on it, we infer there's a mind behind it instantly. We do not think that we can explain the meaning of that writing in terms of the physics and chemistry of that screen and so on. And I often say to colleagues, I challenge them when they say, look, we will solve this problem because... I am a reductionist. I believe everything can be reduced to physics and chemistry. And I say, okay, look at this menu. It says roast chicken. You please apply that to this. And you explain to me the semiotics of those marks, roast chicken, they carry meaning. You explain to me that in terms of the physics and chemistry of the paper ink. I remember doing that with one of the world's leading biochemists and he stopped dead and he said, I can't do it and it cannot be done. And he said, for 40 years I've gone into my lab in Oxford thinking it could be done, but it can't. And he said, where did you get that argument? I said, from a Nobel Prize winner. And he said, what a relief. I thought you'd got it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Roger Sperry, you're not going to find the meaning of the message in the paper and in ink. Now this is crucially important when it comes to studying life because the informational level is the most important level. And if it's not material, it cannot be produced by purely natural, unguided processes. And our intuition informs us that way. Now, going very briefly into slightly more deeply. You see, you take your cell, take a cell. It is, amongst other things, an information processor. It does many other things as well. It is unbelievable. But let's look at that. It's an information processor. And there's a famous uh, theorem in theoretical computing, the, the Church Turing thesis, that any computer, past, present or future, can be simulated by a Turing machine. Now, if you don't understand what that means, it doesn't matter for the moment. But the point is, we've got an abstract way of grasping computing. Now, a cell is at least a computer. But now work has been done by the mathematicians like the genius Gregory Chaitin at Bell Labs. Coming up with results that sound like this, a computer or a Turing machine can process information, but it cannot generate any new information that's not either in its input or in its informational structure. Now, once you begin to bring that kind of argument into biology, you're sunk It's like trying to prove that life will be eventually explicable without mind is like trying to prove perpetual motion in terms of energy. And that brings me, and this is a hugely interesting subject to my mind. You see, let me apply that now to the fact that we can do science. We've been sitting here talking all night, using our minds, I hope. And... um, You've been understanding what we've been talking about. How is it we can do science? How is it that mathematics works? I think in my mind some mathematics it appears to apply to the universe. How does that possibly work? And great minds like Einstein were sufficiently bright to see there was a problem. The most incomprehensible thing about the universe, he said, is that it's comprehensible. How does it work? And sometimes I have fun as I did with this particular person. I said, what do you do science with? And he described some terrific machine. I said, no. Oh, he said, you mean my, and he was nearly saying mind when he remembered that nobody believes in the mind anymore. He said, I do it with my brain. Well, I said, I do believe the mind story and the brain story are different. But believe we'll it, you do science with your brain. Yes, he said, that's what I do it with. Tell me the story of the brain with which you do your science. Well, he said, the brain, the short story is, the brain is the end product of a mindless, unguided process. And I said, and you trust it. <laughs> Tell me, I said, be honest with me. If that box that's on your desk you call a computer. If you knew it was the end product of a mindless, unguided process, would you use it or trust it? No, he said. Well, now I said, come on, explain. You're telling me that the thing you trust to do science has no basis for trust. And I said, by the way, do you know where I got that argument? He said, no. I said, I got it from Charles Darwin. He said, you what? I said, you heard me. I got it from Darwin, who wrote about the horrible doubt that came upon him from time to time. That the mind of man, which he believed, descended from the minds of lowlier animals how could its thoughts have any validity? And he added in, I mean, what validity could a monkey's thoughts have if a monkey has any such thought? Now I want to pursue that just for a minute because this is rapidly moving into the centre of the debate we're having tonight. One of the reasons, ladies and gentlemen, I am not an atheist is that atheism and science don't mix. Our topic is cosmic chemistry, do science and God mix? I want to make a provocative statement that atheism and science don't mix for the very simple reason that if you take atheism to its logical consequences, you undermine the validity of rationality and therefore of any argument of any kind. Now, you say, well, you say that because you're a Christian. Just a moment. One of the leading philosophers in the world today is Thomas Nagel of New York. And he has written an explosive book. And you realize it's explosive when I give you the title. Mind and Cosmos. Why the neo-Darwinian view of the world is almost certainly false. Now Nagel is an atheist. A hard atheist. He doesn't want there to be a god. But he says there's something wrong here. Because if we follow evolutionary naturalism, that there's a naturalistic explanation, we are ultimately undermining the validity of the rationality that we use to formulate evolutionary naturalism in the first place. So, pursuing what you're saying about the chemistry, we then go into the informational aspect of it. And it raises a question that C.S. Lewis, to whom I owe so much, said long ago. He said no theory of human existence that invalidates Human thought can itself be valid. And that is where it seems to me that atheism is headed. So, it's not that, give us another few thousand years and we'll solve the problem. We cannot solve the problem until we realize that what we've got to explain is information. And in all of our experience, information implies mind. So, if we come back to the worldviews with which we started... The one is, in the beginning was mass energy, the multiverse, the universe, or nothing. And everything else is derivative. That is, mass energy is primary, mind is derivative. I'm utterly unconvinced of that intellectually. The worldview that convinces me goes this way. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. All things came to be through Him. In other words, mind is primary. And mass energy is derivative. So we're confronted with a diametrical opposition between two worldviews. And it seems to me your researches and the researches into information theory are converging to say, yes, it's a mystery from the chemical point of view. Go to the information and you're beginning to point towards the existence of a mind behind the whole thing. Now, you, you, you did something
1: very clever here.
3: Did I? Yeah, gosh, that's a first. <laughs> you, 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 you
1: brought a Bible verse into this. Does the Bible have anything constructive to tell us about origins?
3: Well, many people think not. But this amuses me in a way, Jim, because going back to the origin of the universe, you see, I'm old. I'm much older than you. I was at university in the middle of the last century. Just think of that. And in Cambridge in the 1960s, there started to arrive this fantastically exciting new idea that there was cosmological evidence of a beginning to space-time. Wow! What many of you may not know is the scientific establishment in the United Kingdom resisted it. And there was a famous editorial in Nature, which is the most prestigious Jim publishes in Nature, they don't take pure mathematics at all, but the real stuff goes in Nature. And there was an article by a man called Maddox who was the editor, and he said we must not give in to this idea that there was a beginning to space time. Why? Because it will give too much leverage to people who believe the Bible. Now, this is fascinating. The arguably the greatest result in cosmology in the 20th century was resisted by the scientist because it appeared to support what Genesis had been saying for thousands of years. Now, I have been at several very prestigious gatherings of physicists and so on. And your question came up in a situation that I can't quite tell you where it was. But a very famous physicist stopped me and said, Come on, he said, Professor Lennox, you're joking, aren't you? If you suggest the Bible has anything to say to us in the 21st century on science. Well, I said, no. I said, of course, the the Bible is not a textbook of science. I will never teach algebra from Leviticus, for example. (laughs) But its concerns are much greater, much more about the why than the how. But it does talk about the physical universe. When it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's talking about the same heavens and earth that scientists study. So there are certain places where it does talk. And I said to them, I said, I take it seriously, you know. Let me just make a thought experiment with you. Suppose you had read and taken seriously the biblical worldview that there was a beginning. Rather than clinging on to Aristotle and his eternal universe, If you had taken the biblical worldview more seriously, you might have looked scientifically for evidence of a beginning before you did. And it was very interesting to see the effect of that. But it's even more interesting than that. Here is the Bible written centuries ago in very economical language. And it's talking about creation. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But then comes the explosive thing. And God said... And God said, and God said, and God said. What's that say? It's saying that our universe is built up on the basis of a series of informational inputs and speech acts. It's informationally based. And that resonates with the statement, In the beginning was the word. Genesis is explaining to us that first statement of the Gospel of John in the beginning was the word all things came to be through him and to one very famous astrophysicist who thought the Bible was a joke I said well if it was a joke how is it
2: that
3: it puts its finger on something the importance of which we've only recently begun to realize that is that information is a fundamental part of this universe and he was so struck He said, look, if the Bible's got the concept of information, I said, I read it to him. In the beginning was the word. He said that would change my entire view of the Bible. And I would want to argue here that although the Bible says little about the mechanism of creation, it's pointing to information. And therefore that suggests to me that in addition to all the efforts to do it purely naturalistically, I think the time has come when as a scientific program, we need to factor in information. After all, there's such a thing as the SETI project, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which means that people believe, because they put billions of dollars into it, that they can detect the difference between noise and an intelligent signal. Well, the evidence of intelligence is in DNA. What about that? Mm-hmm. It's sending a signal as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Let, let's, let's bring this together then. Yeah, we need to. Let's we? bring this together. W- w- what is the impact of this? So for me, you know, I, I, I think of all these great concepts. But for me, what really brings it together is when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, something changed in me that I started smiling in a way that other people Notice this as being quite different. One of the things that I see about this, this Bible that you're talking about that speaks of information and all these scientific things is the Bible changes a life like nothing else that I've ever seen. The truth of the resurrection. And this is a topic that I've gone through and studied like a scientist would study the validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Bible puts this as a fundamental. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord and do you believe that he's risen from the dead? Are you willing to confess that he's Lord? Has he risen from the dead? And the people that do this fundamentally change their attitudes. So, for example, when I first came to Rice, a student came to me and they said, oh, such and such a professor, this biology professor is always ragging on Christians, saying that Christians are stupid. I said, "Okay, why don't you ask that biology professor if they'd like to to have a talk with me and we'll talk about this. Or why don't you just ask them if their grown children like them? Because because if anybody has to take their class time to rag on Christians as a biology professor, they must be very bitter. And I'll bet their grown children don't even like them. And 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 what I've seen is an attitude difference that changes. When this life of Christ comes in, it takes the hardest of people and softens them. And I saw this. I saw this in the life of a a person that many of you here will know with, with Rick Smalley. When he came to the Lord a few years before his death, I saw this attitude change, this immediate change where he started asking about, how can I take care of my students? How can I cause them to be happy working in my group? I mean, it changes a life. This book touches on information, but this book, for me, changes a life.
3: Have you seen this? Yes, uh, uh, indeed, the whole business about in the beginning was the Word is the start. We really need another evening on this, because the very next statement is that the Word became human and dwelt among us. And God becomes personal in Jesus Christ, the comes into our world and it's interesting you mentioned the resurrection because that's been a key point for me Uh, when at university i remember listening to one of the world's brightest lawyers investigating in public the forensic evidence for the resurrection of jesus and it did something to me and so in many of my lectures like you i will refer to this but coming to the point you've asked me Many people say to me, look, you're a scientist, well, you're a mathematician, Jim Tours is a scientist. Well, surely science believes in testability and Christianity isn't testable. Well, who told you that? Of course it's testable. I wouldn't be a Christian for a nanosecond if I didn't believe it was testable. And it was brought so to my attention in one of the ways you described when I was lecturing at one of your major universities. And I just finished a lecture in the Q&A. And we were just about to stop when in the balcony, there were several thousand students there. A Chinese student stood up and he yelled at everybody, look at me, he said. And we all stopped and wondered what on earth was going to happen. And he was really directing it to me, so I looked at him, of course. I said, why should I look at you? And he said, just look at me. And he was radiant, uh, he said, six months ago. I was at a different university in the States, and I heard a lecture you gave. And something stuck with me. He said, my life was in such a mess. I was, had no meaning in it, no purpose in my studies. I was going nowhere. And I was desperately looking for meaning and answers to the mess I'd made out of my life. And something you said stuck. And he said, within a few weeks, I had knelt down and given my life to Christ. And now he said, just look at me. Everybody turned and looked and he was radiating. It was one of the most powerfully moving evidences of the testability of Christianity. Christ trains, you see, that if we trust him, he can bring us forgiveness. There's not one of us that can't relate to that. He can bring us peace with God. He can give us new power to live and meaning in life. Now, if I hadn't seen that happen in my own life and in hundreds of others' lives, I wouldn't sit here for a moment. The great thing is it's all consistent. It works at the intellectual level. It's expansive. It's open. But at the practical level of our human lives and relationships, it gives us the biggest thing of all. For me, mathematics is tremendously interesting in all these questions. But there's a far bigger thing. And that is that I can actually get to know the God that invented the atom.
1: I think that that's probably a, a good place to... To have some questions. Get some yes. questions here. Juan Carlos.
0: Professor Lennox and and Dr. Tour, thank you so much uh, for uh, this wonderful discussion. Uh, It certainly has um, provided much wisdom, but also raised some great questions. So here's uh, the first one that I have for you. If the universe can't create itself, uh, if the universe can't create itself, then what about God? Doesn't the same flaw of logic
3: exist? (laughs) Are you looking at me?
1: I'm looking at you. Oh,
3: well, yes. (laughs) Yes. it's very interesting this question who created the creator if you believe that God created the universe then you must logically ask who created God so it's who created the creator that created the creator and so on ad absurdum so let's forget God go and play football I mean this is the heart of one of Dawkins books he thinks this argument really deals with God I was amazed to read this because look ladies and gentlemen I'm afraid this is more logic that I'm going to trouble you with But if you ask the question, who or what created X? What are you assuming? You're assuming that X was created. So if you ask what created God, you're assuming God was created. But I've never met an intelligent person who believes in God, that thinks he was created. The God of the Bible is eternal. He wasn't created. So the question doesn't even apply to him. Now the irony is, it's Richard Dawkins who came out with this in his book The God Delusion, which incidentally is not called The Created God Delusion, otherwise nobody would have read it. You see, and I put it to him. I said, Richard, you think this is a valid question? Of course it is, of created gods. But let me apply it to you. You believe the universe created you. Okay, I said, who created your creator? I've waited ten years for an answer to that. The point is, taking it seriously philosophically, It's a question about ultimate reality. Is there an ultimate reality? Now, my atheist friends usually believe there is. It's the universe, the multiverse, or nothing. I believe the ultimate reality is God who was uncreated. So asking who or what created God is just silly. Because he wasn't created. Okay? So I don't think that question has any force in it whatsoever. Thank you. Well, you mentioned multiverse. Isn't the multiverse a more probable
0: explanation for the fine-tuning of the universe, for example?
3: Do you want to take that, Jim? Go ahead.
1: Oh, dear.
2: <laughs>
1: ah. Do you all know about the multiverse? It, yeah, I was going to say that. Explain to us what multiverse means.
3: Oh, I wish I could. I mean, <laughs> the multiverse is the idea, which is very difficult to grasp, That instead of there being just one universe, this one, there's an infinity of universes, whatever that means, and that's quite difficult. Is there such a thing as an infinity of real objects as distinct from mathematical points? That's, that's a problem in itself. But bypassing that, there's an infinity of universes in which everything that can happen does happen. So that it's not surprising that we find ourselves in this universe because there's an infinity of them and so on and so forth. And this sounds wonderful. Wonderful. Until you begin to push hard. First of all, the way you formulated the question is very interesting because people often say, as in some of the leading books, our astronomer royal has written a book called Just Six Numbers that he says he prefers the multiverse to the God explanation. But that's setting up a completely false apposition. God can create as many universes as he likes. The existence of a multiverse is not an argument against God whatsoever. And I know Christians who believe in the multiverse. And so that opposition is false. Isn't it a more probable explanation? But when you start to look at it, Hawking favours it. John Polkinghorne uh, taught me, or tried to, quantum physics years ago at Cambridge, and he just points out that once you begin to examine these multiverses, we have no access to them. There's no evidence for their existence apart from some arguments in quantum mechanics. And it's very interesting looking at the wars that go on in the world of theoretical physicists about this. Because I think it's Roger Penrose, raises the objection to Hawking is that you bring in multiverses when you don't have a theory at all. It's an excuse for a theory. Because if we've no access to them, and we don't know what they are, and in any case, logically, and this argument would take us too long, but you can find it, they do not improve the probability situation. In fact, one of my very good friends uh, was a world expert of the philosophy of physics and a multiverse person. And he said, I agree with you, it doesn't affect the probabilities at all. So, that it's a very weak thing to put your faith and to trust that as an alternative to God, when first of all, it's no logical alternative to God. And secondly, there's no real evidence. Now, there's much more to be said about it, but I have written a little book called God and Stephen Hawking, whose design is it anyway? And I go into that a little bit there. Do you want to add to that, Jim?
2: No. <laughs> uh, okay.
0: Well, here's one for Dr. Tour. Although chemists have tried and failed to produce the building blocks of life in a laboratory, is it possible that, given a long time, like 4.5 billion years, ribose and nucleic acids could form?
1: So, if 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 you look at the chemistry that's been done, and every try that's been done, the answer looks like no. So you can get a small amount and say, "Okay, well, that small amount is all you need. That's not true, because now you've got to take that small amount and get it away from all the other material that's there because you only get it in a small amount. Trying to get it away is very, very difficult. And then once you've gotten that little bit away, it's got to go hundreds of synthetic steps, hundreds of synthetic steps to be able to get where it needs to go. But it doesn't even know where it's going. So when I'm making a molecule, I know what my target is. It doesn't know what it's going toward, nor does it know to stop when it got there. You can take any, any material you want, make it, and then ruin it by transforming it into something else. It doesn't know to stop there. So this argument that if you just wait long enough, it's going to form. No, what happens with organic chemicals? This happens all the time in the lab. You wait long enough and it goes to trash. That's what it does. It goes to polymeric garbage. Time turns out to be your enemy in chemistry. Time is your enemy. As soon as you make something, you need to either isolate it, put it in the freezer away from anything that can hurt it or bring it on right away. Very few things are stable enough that you can make them and leave them out. Whether your your atmosphere is air or whether your atmosphere is ammonia, you can't leave them out. Ammonia is quite reactive. You can't leave them anywhere. And then it's got to find the other component that it's supposed to add with. Remember, that's in another cave, maybe not a neighboring cave. It might be another cave on another planet. You've got to get these things, do two things together. Time turns out to be chemistry's enemy. Any graduate student that that says, I'll just do this reaction, I'll set it up, I'll go on vacation and come back. (laughs) They're never going to get anything to work because time is actually your enemy when it comes to synthetic chemistry.
0: Regarding the complexities of nothing, to violate the laws of logic is absurd. But isn't that what faith is, a violation of the laws of logic?
3: there has been a brilliant brainwashing going on in the academy. Faith has had its meaning changed. It's like the redefinition of nothing. And it's very interesting that people like Richard Dawkins will say that they believe in reason. They don't believe in faith. Because faith is believing where there is no evidence. Like Mark Twain once said, faith is believing what you know ain't true. Now that is a very serious slander on every one of you actually because faith is an ordinary English word. It comes from the Latin fides (coughs) from which we get excuse me (coughs) from which we get fidelity and so on. And It means trust. When you use that word, I trust X or I trust in X, a person, the next question you can ask is on the basis of what evidence? And you'd be crazy to trust something, even in a science textbook if there isn't evidence. But what has cleverly been done by the group of new atheists is, they've redefined faith as believing where there's no evidence. And they've written off Christianity as taking that view. That's nonsense. The Christian faith, other faiths must speak for themselves, but the Christian faith is firmly based on evidence. The evidence of the resurrection in particular. That is, my faith in Christ is evidence-based. Secondly, that idea of faith as opposed to logic would destroy all science. Because you cannot do science without faith. Einstein once said, I cannot imagine a genuine scientist without that faith. He didn't mean faith in God. He meant faith that science could be done, or to put it more technically, he meant faith in the rational intelligibility of the universe. You cannot do your science without believing that science can be done, that there's something to be found, that there's a rational intelligibility. Now, the irony is that atheism, as I pointed out earlier, doesn't ground that. So the two big mistakes are, one, to define faith as believing where there's no evidence. That's not faith, it's blind faith. And it can be very dangerous. Secondly, is to suggest that faith is a religious term. It's not. It's an ordinary term. I have reasons for trusting my wife. I have reasons for trusting the results of mathematical papers and so on and so forth. We're all used to that. And to start using the word faith and saying, well, I believe in reason, you believe in faith, that's nonsense. Because to do science you have to faith in reason. What I'm saying is this, that faith is an essential part of every activity that we have, particularly intellectual activities. And the new atheists are just completely wrong and it has led them to complete absurdity. For instance, Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, wrote in a book, "Our faith is no, our faith is not a faith. Our beliefs are not a belief." Well, that's just nonsense. But he's got hung up on this new definition of faith as believing where there's no evidence. I won't yield an inch to that, because it's so important for me to get across to my scientific colleagues, that they're, all of us are people of faith. There's not a person in this room that's not a person of faith in every area of their lives. Their science, the worldview they believe in. And a classic example of that misunderstanding was the story I told you about Peter Singer. When he said he was an atheist, and, I said, uh, and he said, that's not a faith. And I said, well, I thought you believed it. He just has got so hung up on this redefinition. And that's a very serious point, because unless we get over it, we'll be talking about science here and faith there. That's a nonsensical dichotomy, because faith is essential to science. Now, the problem is raised by the fact that faith has two or three meanings, and one of them is a substitute for religion. The Christian faith, the Jewish faith, the Muslim faith. We need to be very careful when we use the word that we add to it faith in what? And that's why I've been very careful, I hope, this evening when I use the word faith never to let it stand alone. Faith in God or faith in the rational intelligibility of the universe. It's all faith. So let no one kid you to think that you are not a person of faith. Of course you are. And the key question is what is the evidence on which your faith is based? Sorry to go on about that. Thank you, Uh, Dr. Tour. You
0: mentioned how uh, coming to faith in Christ changed your life and changed the way you live. Can there be good without God?
1: So. If the question is, do you have to become a Christian to do an act of good? Of course Not. There are are many people that do do acts of good that that may not be be Christian, but fundamentally, where does that good originate? That would be the more fundamental question. And one could well argue that it's something outside of us that impresses upon us what good is, because there has to be some objective measure of what is good and it has to be something outside of us. You studied, you, you took courses with, with, with uh, C.S. Lewis. He could expand on that much better. How would you, you explain it?
3: <laughs> hey, he's very subtle, you know. <laughs> I, I would answer very, very much as you've done. I, I think it's so important. You remember the story I told you about my parents? who believe that every human being is of infinite value whether they believe in God or not. And we are all moral beings made in the image of God. And that means, to make it concrete, I could be put to shame by an atheist friend in terms of their moral behaviour. Now, the way you formulated the question, you see, is ambiguous. Can we be good without God, I think you said. Yes, we can be good Without believing in God, but we can't be good without God, because the concept of good, as Jim has pointed out, is connected with God. And I think Dostoevsky was right, actually, and this could lead us into a whole very interesting field. That not only do I believe that science and the fact that we can do it is a pointer towards God, but the fact that we are moral beings is also a pointer towards God. Dostoevsky said, if God does not exist, everything is permissible. He didn't mean atheists can't do good things. Of course they can. What he meant was, logically and rationally and philosophically, if you get rid of God, you have great difficulty in defining the categories of good and evil. But that's a huge topic, and that's really one for another, you know. All right, two more questions. Um,
0: Is there scientific data that I've discovered could challenge uh, your beliefs or are your beliefs non empirical?
1: <laughs> OK, so so. Is there a scientific discovery that could challenge my beliefs, the fundamental that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he's risen from the dead? There is nothing that is going to change that for me. That he's risen from the dead. If you look at the the evidence, the historical evidence that is there for his resurrection. Now, in science, things may well be found. My interpretation of things could well be wrong in science. Happens all the time. I mean, I I actually am wrong more than I like to admit. And uh, uh, so in my interpretations can be wrong. But is this going to change my faith in Christ? I don't think so. There's nothing that I know of that would change my faith in Christ. So, so if, if other, more evidence should come that the things that I think are uncommonness in, 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 uh, uh, in natural descent, or if there are mechanisms that are shown forth to bear out more evidence for common descent, will it shake my faith? No, I mean, I may have a wrong interpretation on some things. That happens all the time. But it's not going to shake my faith in God being who he is in my life. How about for you?
3: My faith in Christ is part empirical. Of course it is. Because I do believe that the Christian faith is falsifiable in the sense of Karl Popper. And it would take a great deal to falsify it. For example, you would have to prove to me that the lives that I have seen personally changed through believing the gospel had nothing to do with God. You would have to prove to me that Jesus did not rise from the dead. You would have to prove to me, and it goes on and on and on and on, because what I want to emphasize is at the broadest meaning of the word empirical, my faith in Christ is based on solid evidence over all the years of my life. Now, therefore, when questions come up that appear to challenge them, I investigate them. That's where the strength of my faith has come from. Instead of ducking the challenge, I faced it. And what I didn't say earlier was, I spent a lot of time behind the Iron Curtain before most of you were born. And in Russia. Because I wanted to see what atheism did to a society. And that was a real proving ground when I got these questions coming at me. So, yes, it's very much empirical. It actually works. It's testable. And therefore, it's falsifiable. But when I go through the list of things that would really falsify it, you rapidly see there's no way that's going to happen. Thank you. You say
0: that science and God mix. But why does it have to be the Christian God? Surely, that is the leap.
3: You want me to go first on that?
1: Yes, I want want you to go, and I want you to wrap it up with this.
3: Oh, wow. (laughs) Well, he's the senior scientist, so I've got to do what he says. Um, That's a very legitimate question. Because, strictly speaking, our title, Do Science and God Mix? Our answer is yes. But how does that get us to the Christian God? Can you get the Christian God through chemistry or cosmology? Not really. That is another step. And if I'm to answer that, I answer it on several different levels, but I'll I'll keep it very short. Because, firstly, to get to the Christian concept of God, you need further kinds of evidence. Now, we've emphasized several times tonight that The deity of Christ, his claim to be God incarnate, is based on a historical event. His life, his death, and above all, his resurrection. And if you're going to consider Christianity seriously, you cannot simply do it on the basis of the natural sciences. You've got to bring in two more areas. And the first one is history, and the second one is personal experience. And at the historical level, most people start there. Jim says he started there. And in many ways, I started there because it was so important for me to realize Christianity is not a philosophy. Anybody, if they're sufficiently clever, can produce a philosophy. But it's geared into history. It makes historical claims. And that's a totally different matter. You can't fudge up history. And there are claims about a person who lived and died and rose again. So you can approach it In that way. And let me put it this way. Why the Christian God? Well, history is a tester. Now, I have friends from all religions, and I respect them. But let me just take the three great monotheistic religions for a moment. I have many Jewish friends. They believe that Jesus died and did not rise. I have many Muslim friends. They believe that Jesus didn't die. I believed he both died and rose again. All three of those things cannot be simultaneously true historically. So, in your approach to that, you have to ask yourself, what is the historical evidence? But the second thing is very important to me. Among all the competing worldviews, why would I be a Christian? Well, for all the reasons I've given, plus putting it a slightly different way, let me put it this way, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus Christ competes with no one else. And you say, gosh, that's a claim to my... Yes, it's quite true. Because no one else in all of history offers me here and now, as I sit in this room, a knowledge of forgiveness, offers me a completely new life and a clean sheet if I repent and trust in as Saviour and Lord, offers me eternal life, which doesn't simply mean I live forever, although it means that, but offers me a new quality of life. Christ doesn't compete with anybody because nobody else offers this. And one of my biggest reasons here for being a Christian is that Christ offers me all of these things as a free gift. If you look at religion and other paths, I talk to many religious people, and they all tell me more or less the same thing, that religion is, well, you have some sort of initiation, you then have a path, let's call it the way, and then you come to a judgment, a final assessment, for your good deeds will be weighed against your bad deeds. Many people think that Christianity is like that. But here's the revolutionary thing, it isn't. You see, ladies and gentlemen, all of those ways depend on merit. I do my best to keep the rules in the hope that God will forgive me at the end. And many people think that that's what Christianity is. It isn't. Because I know, Jim mentioned sin at the beginning, it's not a popular word, but I know that I can't keep the rules. Even the rules my own conscience tells me. And the unique thing about Christianity is that Christ comes to me here and now and says, Look, I am the judge at the final day. And I tell you that if you trust me, you will receive eternal life and you will not come into judgment. But you will have already passed from death to life. And that means that you can be sure of acceptance now. You don't have to wait. Let me give you a simple illustration in closing this down. I told you I'd been married for 48 years. Do you know how I proposed to my wife? Well, I got this beautiful cookbook. And I brought it to her one day, and I, you know, she's a lovely girl, and I said, look, here's a cookbook, it's full of rules. Baking apple cake. Thou shalt take a thousand grams of sugar. Thou shalt take so much flour. Thou shalt take. And so on. And you mix them up and heat them and you make a cake. Now I said, it's going to be like this. I would like you to be my wife. And it's going to go like this. If you keep the rules in this book for, let's say, 40 years, and you cook exactly as I want for 40 years, I'll think about accepting you.
2: And if you don't,
3: you go back to your mother. (laughs) Why are you laughing? <laughs> because that's exactly what millions of people think about God, including some of you. If I keep the rules for my life, you'll think about accepting me. Now let me put this, this would be very provocative, but I want to make you think. You would not insult a fellow human being by doing what I suggested a few minutes ago. The secret of our marriage is that I accepted her, and for some amazing reason she accepted me, at the beginning of the journey. And that sets us free to live for one another. That's exactly what my relationship with Christ is like. The wonder of it, the uniqueness of it, is at the beginning He was prepared to accept me and forgive me. So, ladies and gentlemen, I don't go around the world doing sessions like this to gain brownie points, so that when I get to heaven, God will say, you know, he did a good job at Houston that night. (laughs) Come in. No. I go around the world talking to audiences like this, not to gain acceptance, but because I've got it. That's a huge difference. And religion as such tends to say, Merit in the hope that you'll get in. And in that sense, my Christianity isn't a religion at all. It's a relationship based on trust and forgiveness at the beginning. And that's why I believe in the Christian God.
2: Professor Lennox and Dr. Tour,
0: thank you so much again for uh, this evening. There are re- uh, refreshments in the foyer just outside. There's coffee, there's cookies. We'd love for you to stay if you're able to. Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Have a good night.